<laughs> Hello, Rowdy people. How are you doing this morning? Well, from the sound of it, you're doing very well. That was, that was as Mary said, a good aerobic uh, time of worship. I got a fan back here, and I just feel like I need a ventilator here. It's like, oh, just kind of oh, get a little bit of sweaty. We call it the anointing. So if I start sweating, you just know it, that's the anointing. It's flowing. Uh, you know, uh, I want to echo something Mary just said about, uh, I encourage you to, to think about the, volunteering at this uh, food shelf. Uh, if that's something God puts on your heart. Um, we're just so blessed to have, if you came here during the week, uh, especially I think it's on Monday and Wednesdays, uh, certain, certain ministries only happen then, but uh, it, it's so cool. We, we have so much traffic going on here. And it's all about service. Uh, folks come. We've got a, this daycare center for uh, mothers who are in protective shelters uh, and for low-income families. And, um, and then we've got this food shelf. And folks are... But hundreds are coming on a regular basis for that. I've got this job training thing going on around here. And this is, I think, this is the beginning of what I see. God wants us, a building is the building. This isn't the church. We are the church. But the building is, can be used for some real good kingdom purposes. And seeing this is a service center. People, when they think about, where do we go to get food? Well, go there. And, and where, where can we get help on, you know, with kids? Go there. And this is what the kingdom is supposed to be. We're, we're foot washers. And so, see, what we're doing is we just pool all of our money together and we support stuff like that. And that's how the kingdom grows and we're manifesting the love of God. And it's just beautiful. I, uh, a little while back, went, went back there and just spent a little time just watching and just praying over the various things going on. And it brought me to tears, just seeing the beauty of all that. So it's a wonderful thing to uh, invest time in if, if you uh, uh, can have some time to invest in that. And I also want to say one more thing before I get into the message, and that is that um, I, I just so appreciate you folks um, and your faithfulness. I, I, I'm very aware that we, on a regular basis, have ministries up here, uh, most of them not about Woodland Hills, but ministries that we ask you to give to because they're good kingdom things. And invariably, you guys step up and give to that. And the food shelf's just been the latest example, although that's a ministry that is here, but all the while, and I think this is the first time in our history that we've done this, uh, every week throughout the summer, we've been over our budget. <laughs> That's like shocking. That's wonderful. So I really appreciate that. No, no, don't, don't, don't start coasting on us here. Uh, believe me, there's plenty of needs, but, but uh, I just appreciate the, the faithfulness. It feels like we're a people who are growing in our capacity um, to... Uh, just to say no to certain American niceties in order to say yes to some kingdom necessities. Well, I like the way that, that came out. That came out just right. <laughs> say no to some American niceties to say yes to some kingdom necessities. Uh, we've, got, we've got more resources than we know. And if we can just shave down a little bit for the sake of others. Uh, the kingdom starts when we bleed, right? It's when we start to imitate the love of God on the cross, which is all about sacrifice. And, um, and so that, that, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I want to say individually and collectively keep growing in that direction and let it get more and more and more and more radical. <laughs> the weirder you look, the better you're doing. All right. Okay. So, uh, we're talking about prayer whenever I'm up to bat this, this, uh, summer. Um, James five a passage I read a couple weeks ago says that the, the, uh, earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. 
And I noticed several weeks ago something I hadn't noticed before, and that's that James is, in the Greek, doing a word play here because he uses the same word to describe how we're to pray as he uses to describe the results of prayer. And the word is energeo. We get the word energy from it. Energeo. And, and so it literally he's saying the energized prayer of a righteous person has great power and energizes wonderful results. Energy is just that which produces work. It produces results. And uh, so when we pray with passion, it, it releases a unique kingdom energy into the world. This is, this is the unique opportunity and privilege and responsibility that we have as kingdom people. Uh, Abba Father has uh, set aside a reservoir of energy, if you will, an energy reserve uh, that his bride gets to access. And we do it when we align our will with his will, and that releases his will into the world. Now, it doesn't guarantee results. Uh, that would be magic if you thought that. Uh, God doesn't just collapse everyone's free will and all the free will of angels and all the other variables that affect what comes to pass. Um, but it does release that energy and influences the world in the kingdom direction. Whether you see the results of what you're praying for or not, you can trust that uh, you've, you've brought the kingdom into the world a little bit more through your prayer. There is no wasted prayer. Um, and, and that's all we're doing in prayer. Uh, we're, we're just aligning our will. We're not tr- trying to twist God's arm, gimme, 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 or Santa Claus or slot machine or any other sort. It's just the bride being a, a co-worker with uh, Abba Father. And um, uh, we're laboring with God to bring about His will on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and it does produce wonderful results. We haven't been good enough at sharing some of those results. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be intentional about this. Uh, I've asked the prayer teams and others to give me reports that they hear of, of you know, prayers that really were answered in spectacular ways. And it's important that we testify about that. Whether we do it from the pulpit or not, uh, we're, we're supposed to. When God does stuff, it's, it's for our benefit, but it's also for his glory, to use a biblical term. And this is about bragging on God, drawing attention to his reality. And it increases the faith of others when we, when we testify about this. Uh, and so here's a few examples of, of uh, prayer producing wonderful results. I, I've been told that um, in the last year or so, we've had five couples that we know about where he came forward for prayer, uh, whether in the service, during the service, after the service, or in our house churches. Um, and they prayed because they were struggling with infertility, in some cases for years and years. Uh, and uh, they, as a result of that prayer, were able to conceive and have children. In one case, they had twins. So praise God for that. That's a marvelous thing. Amen. Yes. That's, that's, there's a lady who came uh, forward and had uh, detected uh, the day before a lump on her breast, which, of course, is very concerning. Uh, she came to the prayer team, was prayed for, and uh, when she went home, that was totally gone. It was totally gone. So praise God for that. Amen. There's a guy who had debilitating uh, back problems, just debilitating. And in one of our house churches, they uh, surrounded him and prayed, and uh, the pain was was totally gone. Praise God, his back was was healed. And then we had a person who came forward, um, I guess two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and they were coming forward for knee problems, um, and they started praying with the prayer team. But in the middle of the prayer, they felt like they were uh, supposed to confess. Uh, and, uh, some struggle in their life, a sin in their life that they were in bondage to. And the result of this prayer then was that not only was she healed, but she was delivered from that stronghold in her life. Praise God. Uh, a two-for-one deal. Yeah, just... 
And there is, James says in James 5, there's something about, in the passage we just read, right before it, it says, confess your sins to one another, uh, and then pray for one another, and the prayer is powerful and effective. There's, there's a, uh, it's not a formula, but there's something about confessing that opens us up to receive more from God. I just want us to be a people who are passionate about uh, trusting the energy of prayer. Praying energized prayer that energizes the world. Um, people who do warfare on our knees. And it doesn't matter if you're on your knees or walking or laying down, but what matters is that we're talking to Abba Father. Um, and, um, and we believe in the importance of that. Now here is a challenge. Well, here's what we find challenging, most of us anyways. Uh, while we sometimes see spectacular correlations between our prayer and results, other times we don't. And that's because there's a multiplicity of things. It's not just God's will or our faith. There's a lot of variables that affect this. But it's hard to keep on praying passionately when you don't see the results. We tend to be, in the West, a very practical-minded people. Uh, we like to invest time in things that we can see make a difference. I'm totally like that. If I have a sense that this is a waste of time, it bugs me. I hate wasting time. And there's times in prayer where I, I can feel like that. Like, like, am I just talking to the ceiling here? It can be very discouraging. So how do you stay in the game? How do you stay motivated? How do you stay passionate when... Uh, you don't see the results of what you're praying for. Another struggle that's related to this is that sometimes prayer can feel like just a monologue. And that gets old fast. It's like, have you ever been on a date where you have to carry the whole conversation? This is why I always hated dating. I got married early, so I just stopped dating. I hated it. You have to carry the whole, you know, if the person's too quiet, you have to carry the whole burden of the conversation. And it's like such work. You know, maybe that's just because I'm an introvert and... It's always work, but, but, uh, it's like, uh, or in any other social context, it's awkward where there's silence and you gotta feel like you gotta fill the space with, I'm learning how to get over that, but it's, it's, it's really nicer when there's a dialogue. Uh, and yet talking to God sometimes can feel for a lot of people like it's just a monologue. A monologue that's just about requests. And if you're not seeing the result of it, then it feels like you're just talking to the ceiling. And that gets old really, really fast. And then related to that is the whole issue of, of how do you stay focused? Now, this is more of a problem for us ADD folks, but uh, everyone struggles with this to some degree where you start praying and you're all, you know, intentional and you're going to intercede and, and whatever, and you're praying in, for 90 seconds, and then you find yourself thinking about the grocery list. And then you say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Alba Father, I will, uh, I'll talk to you now. So you focus and you pray, but then 27 seconds later, you're thinking about the, the, the Visa credit card that's gone up too high, and you gotta pay for that. And so they say, oh no, I gotta go back to pray, so you pray and you try to focus, but 13 seconds later, you're thinking about the roof that's leaking, or whatever. The brain just kind of wanders all around. So how do you stay focused? How do you stay passionate? How do you stay motivated? Uh, in our time of prayer. It's really hard to, to have quality pr- prayer life if uh, those things are persistent challenges that you face. And for us in the West, those tend to be persistent challenges. Now, the answer to all three of those takes us to what is, I believe, probably the most important principle about prayer. It's also the most important principle about worship. It's also the most important principle about Bible reading. I think it's also the most important principle about this how we do life throughout the day. And I'm talking about our imagination, the use of our imagination in prayer, Bible reading, uh, what goes on in our imagination throughout the day. So this is entitled Imagining Prayer. Um, now here's the thing. If you've been at Woodland Hills Church, you've heard me talk about this. If you've been here for, I think the last time I mentioned this was about nine months ago or so. 
Um, I come back to it because it's so foundational. If you're relatively new here, this will be totally new to you. It may even sound kind of bizarre, maybe even a little bit scary. But here's the thing. The reason I come back to it so much is because it's so foundational, and yet it's never talked about, hardly ever. Uh, in, in, certainly in, in more conservative Christian churches, it's just not mentioned. In fact, people tend to be worried about the word imagination. They associate it with new age stuff or, or with just child fantasy stuff. And so we don't give any attention to it, any credibility to it. And yet, as we're going to see here in a minute, this is foundational to everything, imagining prayer. So on that note, let me pray here for a moment. Father, I will pray here for everybody in this auditorium and listening through podcasts, uh, television, and other means. Uh, I thank you, God, for the fact that your involvement in their life has brought them to this moment. And I pray, God, that this would be a kingdom moment with kingdom power and kingdom authority that would bring your kingdom into our minds and hearts and lives and families and neighborhoods and jobs. Uh, and, and that at the end of this, they'd be more kingdomized than they were at the beginning of this. Uh, God, I, I just know that, that this is uh, the kind of thing that is a game changer, has been for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people, uh, and it needs to be a game changer for a lot of us here this morning. And so, Father, help us to be attentive and receptive and do your work. Build your kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So here's the deal. There's a whole lot I'm cutting out of this message for, for the sake of time. I'll, I'll attach it to an addendum uh, when we put it online. But you find throughout the Bible that God speaks to people sometimes through dreams and sometimes through visions. You have a lot of that actually going on. And in the Hebrew, the word for dream and vision is actually the same word. The only difference between the two is that one happens when you're awake and one happens when you're asleep. The, the, word, the word means to see. It's a special kind of seeing. But notice, when you have a dream, you see stuff, but it's not a seeing in the objective world. It's a seeing that goes on in what we today call our imagination. Imagination just refers to the mind's capacity to think with images. In fact, this is how we all think. You can't think any other way. If you remember something in the past, you're imagining it. If you anticipate something in the future, you're imagining it. If I ask you to tell me the outline of your kitchen, you imagine it and then give me the information uh, that I'm asking, but you access that information through your imagination. This is just, that's all the word means. But God uses this as a way of, it's a gift of his, to help us access the spiritual realm in ways that are tangible and concrete and therefore impacting and transforming. Um, And so you find God speaking to people, leading people, giving messages to people through visions and dreams. And all that takes place in what we today call our imagination. This is why, for example, in the book of Daniel, twice says that Daniel saw a vision, but the others who were with him couldn't see it. It's a spiritual scene. It wasn't something out there in the physical world. It was real. It just wasn't public. It happens in the imagination. It, this is what the church, uh, the church tradition has been called the inner, the inner sanctuary or the inner sanctum. It's been understood that this is the place where we encounter God. He's given us a special compartment, as it were, where we intersect with spiritual realities and they become real to us and tangible. And so you find throughout the Bible that they use a lot of uh, uh, sense language, uh, language of our senses, hearing and seeing uh, to describe people's encounter with God. But rarely is it a public thing. It's almost always something that takes place 
in our spirit, or what we would call our imagination. So, for example, the, the psalmist says in Psalm 17 that there's one thing I ask of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon his beauty, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, the psalmist wasn't expecting to go to the temple and see Yahweh sitting on the, the front pew and then to go stare at him. That's how he, he was talking about a special kind of seeing, a special kind of seeing. And it is the seeing that can go on in the heart, in the mind, and the imagination of a believer. And it's not just your imagination. It's not fantasy. This is how we access reality. Fantasy can be used to take you away. Imagination can be used as fantasy to take you away from reality. But it can also be used to get you closer to reality, to open up aspects of reality. We see that in sports now, uh, in sports training. We see it in science all over the place where it's being understood that imagination helps us access reality. And that's what we're doing whenever we think about the past or anticipate the future or describe our kitchen to somebody. We're accessing reality. Well, this is also how we access the spiritual realm. And yet, sadly, and I think it's through a demonic influence, the church has grown suspicious about this. The Western culture is bad enough because it secularizes us to not pay any attention to our imagination, to just sort of dismiss it. And then on top of that, a lot of Christians have inherited this paranoia about it. As though when something is used in a wrong way, that means that you shouldn't use it at all. The answer is, if someone uses it the wrong way, you, you respond by using it the right way. And this is the right way to do it, to surrender your mind to your, the Holy Spirit and let him then bring you into spiritual realities. The, the book, that, or the passage that fleshes this out the most, and I talk a lot about this, in fact, this whole concept in my book, Seeing is Believing. If you want to go deeper with this topic, it's so important. Um, but uh, the passage that deals the most with this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, now listen to what Paul The background here is this. Uh, Paul is talking about the a fundamental difference between believers and non-believers. And to get at this difference, he's going to use an analogy from the Old Testament where Moses went up on Mount Sinai and spent 40 days with the Lord. And uh, when he came down, he, he was so reflecting the glory of God, his face was so bright they couldn't stand to look at it. It was like the, the, looking right into the sun. So they put a veil over his face. So Paul's going to use that analogy of a veil to describe the difference between believers and unbelievers. So he's talking about unbelievers here, and he says... Their minds were hardened. Note that he's talking about minds here. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there. Now, he's using an analogy here. It's not literally the same physical veil, but there's a spiritual corollary to that. There's a veil over their mind that keeps them from seeing what God would want them to see. The same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil over their mind is removed. And so this is why folks, when they read the Old Covenant, Paul says, they can't see Jesus there. Jesus says, all Scripture testifies about me, points to me. But you don't get that just by reading the surface meaning of words. There's a special kind of seeing that's required if you're going to see how uh, God is present, Jesus is present in at least certain parts of the, of, of the Old Testament. But I want us to see here that he's talking about a seeing in the mind, what we would today call our imagination. And then he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is, there is freedom. We just sang about that. We've been set free in the presence of Jesus. 
And all of us, and the freedom that he's talking about here is the freedom to see. That's what this whole passage is about. The freedom to gaze on the beauty of the Lord in a spiritual kind of way. Unbelievers don't have this capacity, but when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, he removes the veil, and we can. Whether we use it or not is a different question, but we can do it if we want. And all of us with unveiled faces, he's not talking physical faces here, he's talking about uh, a spiritual reality here, seeing in our mind the glory of the Lord as though reflected in the mirror. With unveiled, now now the veil has been removed, we can see the glory of the Lord as through a mirror. Now what's that mirror thing about? The mirror thing is simply this. Someday we're going to see Jesus face to face. When he returns, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. Until then, our seeing is mediated through this mirror. We see through this mirror. And the mirror he's talking about is the mind. He's been talking about this whole passage. That mirror which was veiled when we weren't believers, but now is unveiled now that we are. And so we can see the real Jesus, the real glory of God through our imagination. It's not make-believe. It's not pretend. Uh, it's not taking us away from reality. This is how we get to reality, the reality of the glory of God. And then he says, as we behold that glory, as through a mirror, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. The Lord who unveils uh, the, our minds is the one who leads us, to, uh, enables us to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And as we behold that glory, we're transformed into that glory. This is the key of transformation. This is how, this is how it happens. And then finally, he closes this a few verses later where he says, If our gospel is still veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. There's a, a being out there, his name is Satan, the God of this age. He does not want you to see what God has enabled you to see. He wants you to ignore it. He, he, he wants to blind you. Because if he can blind you, you won't be transformed in the image. It's what you see that determines what you become. And I'm not talking about a physical seeing. I'm talking about the spiritual seeing, or in what we would today call our imagination. Uh, he, keeps, he, he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing in their mind, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image, icon is the word, the image of God. The enemy does not want people to see the glory of God in the icon Jesus Christ. But if we have surrendered ourselves to the Spirit, he's removed the veil, and we can now see the image of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the icon. Uh, when Jesus was on earth, this is why the author of Hebrews says that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his essence. Now, he wasn't just that for the first century, people who got to see him while he was walking around down here. We today can still do that. We can encounter the real Jesus. We do it through a mirror, not face to face, but, but the Jesus we encounter is the real Jesus. And so we can see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Because it's the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God spoke, as God spoke light into darkness when he created this world, so also God spoke light into our hearts. And for Paul, heart and mind, you know, we, we separate these two, our reasoning and our emotion, but ancient Jews never did. Uh, they had a much more holistic understanding of things. These are just two sides of the same coin. The, the, the mind is the, the, the thinking part of it. The heart is the more emotional part of it. But it's all one person. It's all our mind. Uh, the, the two go hand in hand. Now, look how po- important this is. Paul is saying that the main difference between believers and unbelievers 
has to do with what goes on in their minds. What they see in their minds. And the foundational principle of transformation, the thing that Paul says transforms us more than anything else, is what we see in our mind. As we behold, as I can see, really see, and experience the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, I, just like Moses acquired the glory of Yahweh when he was up on that mountain, so also when we are in the presence of the Lord, encountering him in this inner sanctum, spending time with him, gazing upon his beauty, we take on that beauty. When I see the Lord's love for me, then, then I become more loving. And when I see his peace towards me, uh, I become more peaceful. Uh, when I see his joy over me, I become more joyful. All that is his by nature becomes ours by grace through a process of osmosis. Uh, and it's not by us trying hard or laboring hard or whatever. There's discipline for sure involved in this. But it's mainly by our just beholding his beauty. Now that the veil is removed, and all of this takes place in what we would call our imagination. You see why the enemy would want so badly to shut this thing down? You shut down the imagination, and, and, and your main vehicle for accessing the spiritual world, for experiencing spiritual realities, is shut down. Your ability to hear from God is going to be shut down. Your ability to be transformed by gazing on the beauty of the Lord is going to be shut down. What a tragedy it is that this isn't talked about all the time throughout the church, because this is just such a foundational principle. Uh, that we need to thoroughly integrate. I find this, that the if you, if you were to divide up the, the church into folks who really do spend a lot of time in prayer and they, they get into it and they get passionate, and then other folks who are just bored stiff with it. Or folks who, are, who worship passionately. When they worship, man, they're jumping around, they're into it, they're crying, they're laughing, they're whatever. They're really into it. And then there's another group that just is like, you know, this, uh, this song's getting repetitious. Uh, or I can't keep the beat, or whatever. Um, the difference between those two groups is not necessarily that one group's more committed than the other or one group's more spiritual than the other. Rather, what I found over the years is that the main difference is that the passionate group has something going on between their ears that the dispassionate group doesn't have going on. For whatever reason, some people just do this by nature. I've always done this by nature. I, I see who I'm singing to and who I'm praying to and I envision things. Um, and it keeps me in the game. It keeps me motivated. Uh, so some people just do this by nature. It never occurred to them to do it any other way. But others, for whatever reasons, never learned that. They just didn't ever get that. And so to them, this is boring. And, and this is when it begins to just feel like a monologue talking to the ceiling. And, and, and where if you don't see the results, it's hard to stay in the game. And, and, and it, your relationship with God just doesn't feel personal. People, people I, I talk to folks all the time who are saying, you know, I, I believe all this stuff, but it just doesn't feel real. Or I, this personal love, it just doesn't, I don't feel that. And they go on. It's to the credit that they go on, despite the fact that it doesn't feel real to them. But it's really hard to stay involved and passionate when it's just a monologue talking to the ceiling. Uh, where, where it gets interesting and exciting, and I think it, it pertains to our whole spiritual life, is, is when we trust that we access reality through our imagination. And when you can, I, I think that the, 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 the main determiner of the quality of our, our walk in the kingdom is the, the vibrancy of what's going on between our ears. What we're seeing, what we're hearing, we all live in a narrative. We all live in a story that interprets the world around us. The question is, do we live in the kingdom story or do we live in the atheist story that we've inherited from this secular culture? God wants us to live in the kingdom story, and that's all about what we do with our imagination, uh, how we use that in prayer and in worship, 
uh, and, and throughout the day. What do you see? What do you hear? Are, 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 what are you listening to? So here's what I want to do. I got 13 minutes. I'm going to share a little bit about how this works for me. Um, but when I'm, I'm sharing how this works for me, I'm just giving an illustration here, all right? Uh, we're all very unique in the way we do our inner world. And we are all weird on the inside. I mean, uh, we don't even notice how weird we are because we're used to it. But, but we all do it very differently. If you get on the inside of someone's, if they really are honest with you, we all are, get, it's all weird. But I'm going to share some of my weirdness. Uh, and it doesn't have to be your weirdness. The way you do it is going to be different from the way I do it. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you activate this, this beautiful gift that you've got, this inner sanctum, this inner sanctuary, to see how it's going to work for you. But here's, here's an example. When I pray for people, I always see the people I'm praying for. I see them there. Uh, and they could be in any situation, doing anything, doing the dishes, washing the car. Going, I, it, it just sort of pops up. And I, I pray for them. I envision them. And as I'm praying for them, I know that my prayer is releasing kingdom energy into their life. Uh, but it really helps me to stay involved and stay passionate if I can see that. Now, I can't see it with my physical eyes. And praise God, once in a while, you'll see the result of what you're praying for, but sometimes you don't. But what I do, and I didn't work at this, it, it just sort of came to me. And it will come to you as well if you just ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, and He will. Uh, but I, when I pray for people, I see them, and then I see the spotlight of blessing coming down on them. Like a, like a, like a helicopter beam, kind of a searchlight coming on them. They're just, there's a light, and it, it just represents the reality that, um, uh, kingdom blessing is being released into their life. You see, that is real, and now I'm just getting my mind to line up with that reality. Uh, and, and so I know that I'm making a difference. I can feel that difference. I don't just have to trust it. I can see it here. And I know that that's real. Now, of course, there's not a real light beam coming on them. That's a representation, but it's a representation of a reality. The reality is that my prayer is making a difference. Sometimes when I'm praying for people with a specific need, I'll, in fact, usually I'll envision what I'm praying for happening. Uh, and so if I'm praying for someone's financial situation, I'll envision them coming into, you know, some money. Or if I'm praying for their healing, I'll envision them getting healthy. Uh, if I'm praying for their marriage to be fixed, I'll picture them happily married. And all I'm doing there is just, I, I'm believing that this is God's will for them. I think it's, it's, it's grounded in the word that God would want their marriage to be happy. And so I am, as a part of the bride of Christ, I am partnering with God, aligning my will with his, Aligning my vision with his to say, I, we're pressing towards that. And so prayer is just laboring in the spiritual realm to uh, bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, am I certain that that's going to happen? No. Uh, God's not going to just override their free will. They have choices to make. I, I can't be certain it's going to happen. But I am certain that that's God's will. And so I'm going to press in that direction. And see, as I see this... It gives me a, more of an energy, that energized prayer that James talks about. It gives me more of an energy to press in that direction. This is, as I've shared before here, this is really how we do faith on the inside. Uh, Hebrews 11.1. 1. I quote this passage a lot because it's worth quoting a lot. Faith is the substantiating. This is the Darby translation. The substantiating. The word there is hypostasis, which just means substance. Uh, it is the substantiating of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This, this is the only place in the Bible where we're given a flat-out definition of faith. 
and how faith works. It's the substantiating of things hoped for. Here's the thing. I hope, I'm hoping for this. I'm praying for this. I believe this is God's will. And so as I'm pressing for that, I substantiate it. I substantiate the healing or the financial problem being fixed or the marriage being resolved or whatever it is you're praying for. You substantiate the person getting out of the wheelchair. And as you substantiate that, as you see it as a solid reality, a substance, not just a theoretical belief, but a substance, it creates a conviction in you. A leg cost is the word there. A, a conviction that it will be so. Try this. As you think about it concretely, with all five senses, you just see it as concretely as possible. It makes you want it. It's like there's a yes there. And so it, it, it wells up a passion inside of you that makes you press in that direction. And this is how faith works in all of our life. To have faith in something is to see it and, that, and then to live towards it. Not knowing whether it's going to happen or not. In fact, in Hebrews 11, all the examples the author gives of people doing this, none of them got what they were, uh, in this life, what they were looking for. But that's how faith operates. You get a vision. It's a vision of, of how to move forward in the, in, in the future. Uh, this is, I think, what Jesus means when he says things like this. When you pray, believe that you have received it, and, and you will have what you ask for. Now, I know there are folks, again, the word faith crowd, who take this to mean that you're supposed to try to talk yourself up into the certainty that you're going to get what you're asking for. And so then faith becomes sort of a mental gimmick where you're like the lion on the Wizard of Oz going, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And trying to talk yourself into a certainty about something you can't be certain of. But you try not to admit that because you think if you're not certain, then you won't get it. So you try to make yourself certain you will get it so that you will get it. But if you think about it, if you interpret that verse that way, then it's impossible to do what Jesus is asking us to do. If I was certain that I had what I'm asking for, I wouldn't be asking for it. If I'm asking for it, that means I'm acknowledging that I don't yet have it. So it's kind of a double bind. How am I supposed to be certain that I have it when I ask for it? Because otherwise I wouldn't ask for it. No, see, Jesus is in, in very typical, this is so, so typical for first century Jews to talk this way. They're, he's speaking hyperbolically in, in exaggeratory language to emphasize a point. And what the point he's getting at, I think, is just this. When you pray, see what, you, see what you're praying for as though you already have it. Envision it concretely. And see, that's what creates this eleg cost, this passion, this conviction to press towards it. And all of this takes place in what we would today call our imagination. And the more real that is, the more, the more, the easier you're going to find it is to stay in the game, to be passionate, to pray an energizing prayer that releases energy into the world. It's all about what happens in the, the imagination. Another way that I find this works in my life is, is, is this. Um, the reason why prayer often feels like a monologue is because we don't have our receptor on the channel that God speaks in. Because the channel God usually speaks in is the imagination. Um, very rarely in the Bible or today does God speak in an audible voice like I'm speaking right now. He speaks at a spiritual level. And we receive it in the imagination. And if you are in touch with this, then when you pray about things, um, you can ask God questions and you can get answers. Or you, you can discern His will. You hear about people saying, I got a picture, or I got a word, I got a vision. Uh, that still happens today as much as it did in Bible times if you're open to it. Uh, you, you'll, you'll be praying, and then all of a sudden something will come to you. And, uh, and you ask God what that's about, and he leads you and guides you, and this is how you discern uh, what his will is. And as you learn how to do that in prayer, you'll find that it starts to carry over into your day-to-day life, which is good because all of our day-to-day life is supposed to be one long prayer. <laughs> Paul says, pray without ceasing. And so to, to be a good soldier, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 
is to always be seeking to please your enlisting officer. And not getting so involved in civilian affairs you forget about them. We'll be doing our life with our walkie-talkie on, and that walkie-talkie is in your imagination, which is giving you access to a reality that you wouldn't have access to if you were an unbeliever. And so as you're going throughout the day, I encourage you to be paying attention to impressions that you get, to words or a picture or whatever, and not just to dismiss those. We've all been conditioned by the secular culture to just dismiss that stuff, which is why most Western people live 99% of their life, even believers live 99% of their life as functional atheists. If God died and went away, most people would not notice it because they're not intersecting with God on a daily basis anyways. So we say, Jesus, you're Lord of my life, but we live life under our own lordship, doing our own thing, carrying out our own plans because we don't have a receptor on and giving God a chance to say, hey, dude, go this way, not that way. I know you want to go that way, but I got somebody in need over here. Will you just go this way? But if we have the receptor on, well, then we can, and we're willing to trust this and step out on this. Well, now we're available and he can say, Greg, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go here. And, and when you start doing that, now the kingdom gets interesting. <laughs> kingdom coincidences start to happen. Now you're living in a different world, you see? You're, you're a different reality. Um, because you've got your receptor on. Pay attention to that stuff. Don't just dismiss it. He wants to be Lord of our life, not just theoretically, but actually, which means being Lord of this now, and now this now, and now this now. And that means paying attention to what's going on in our spiritual realm. If you're, if you're surrendering your, your imagination to the Holy Spirit, sometimes you can just ask Jesus a question, and he'll answer you. I talk to Jesus like I'm talking to you right now. I don't always see him clearly. Sometimes it's kind of fuzzy, or sometimes I just see the eyes, his, his eyes, or sometimes I have a very clear picture of him. And sometimes we have prolonged conversations, and sometimes it's just kind of short. But you converse with Jesus the way Moses talked to Yahweh, as a friend, face to face. It's mediated through the mirror, but it's still, that is the real Jesus, folks. I talk to the real Jesus. Like we're saying the Almighty God is in this place. That's true, wonderful, amen. But you can talk to the creator of the universe all the time. And, and, and you can envision him. He, is, he has an icon. We read about it, the icon, the image, and it's Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit brings the real Jesus to me in prayer. Now, to, to really benefit from that, you got to get over this brainwashing thing that we have going on that says everything in your imagination is just your own doing. That is just secular view. That's no different than saying everything in the universe is just caused by something else in the universe. God's not allowed to break into the universe. It's a closed system. Well, that's just atheism. Uh, well, it's no different than if we say nothing is allowed to break into our mind. Everything in my mind is my own doing, my own imagination, just my fantasy. Blah! Hogwash! Malarkey! Nonsense! Secularville. Get over that and be open to God breaking. The Spirit of God will bring the real Jesus and you have a conversation. You may say, well, how do you know that it's the real Jesus? Maybe it's just your fantasy. Maybe you're just fantasy. It's like a child talking to Santa Claus. Well, here's how. I've got very good reasons. If you've got a couple hours, I'll tell you uh, why I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. I think it's a very rational belief. And i got very good reasons for believing the Bible is the Word of God. And the Bible tells me that this is how you talk to Jesus. <laughs> we, just, we, just, we just reviewed it. So I'm going to trust that as long as the Jesus I'm talking to is consistent with the Jesus I find in the Bible, I'm going with this. Because uh, I've got every reason to believe this is true. Now, if the Jesus I'm talking to starts acting in ways that aren't consistent with the Jesus of the Bible, well then, that is just your fantasy. And don't get all freaked out by that, because your mind does weird things. Mine does too, no big deal. You set it aside and say, the Holy Spirit, my brain was playing tricks on me. I, I want to talk to the real Jesus. <laughs> A, 
And the way you do that, your mind will be a little different than the way I do it. But, but see, now it's real. It's not a boring monologue. You're not talking the ceiling. You're talking reality. You're talking, and then sometimes, and I'll close with this, sometimes, sometimes stuff can happen in these adventures as you're with Jesus that, that, you, that you never would have dreamed up on your own. And you know that this is just, it's too beautiful to be your own stuff. It's God's stuff. Um, and it can just be profoundly healing. And this is how we get life from God, I think. You know, I always talk about everything depends on our getting our life and our worth and our significance from God. Well, that can only happen if you not only believe that He is all your life and worth and significance, but you're actually experiencing Him, Him loving you, experiencing Him, pouring His, you know, all that worth on you, and you drink deeply from that. Now you can go through life in an overflow mode, mode rather than a desperately hungry mode. But you've got you've to activate that inner sanctum to do it. A theoretical belief won't do it. And then, then there's experiences that are just too beautiful to ever be you. What I shared, I think, a couple of years ago, but, but it just comes to mind now, and I, I'll end with this. But, you know, um, I've always had, uh, I used to have up until the early 90s, a, a trigger whenever things would happen to kids, I'd go into a tailspin. Um, and most people who have had abuse as children have something like this. We empathize too easily with kids who suffer, and we can't get out of it. We're drawn into it. And, and so I would, I would get, get tanked. It would take me out of the game when, when, when terrible things would happen to kids. Uh, it, it would immobilize me. I had a theology that could deal with it, but I don't care how good your theology is. If you've got wounds that are there, those are deeper than your, your, your prefrontal lobe cortex, and they've got to get healed. Otherwise, you're going to keep on getting triggered like that. And so Jacob Wetterling had been kidnapped, disappeared. We still haven't found him. And I went into one of my tailspins full of sadness and full of rage. Because if I was running the universe, I would have put a limit on uh, no one under the age of 12 is allowed to suffer. <laughs> I get the free will thing, but let's kick it in at the age of 13. Uh, you know, if I was running the universe. So I'm, I'm saying, why don't you protect the kids that you say you love? And I was just raging with God, and he understands that. In the middle of this, this time of, of just being honest with God, and remember I said this the very first message on the series, honesty is, is the all-important thing. you got to be honest. When you talk with Jesus, don't try to hide anything. He's omniscient, so what's the purpose? Why, why bother? Get, get, barf it up. He knows it's there. So, but as I'm doing this, see, the, the value is as you're honest, you give him a chance to show. If you show the real you, he shows the real him. And, and now you're looking at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what the glory looked like in this instance. I, in the middle of the prayer, I often got this picture of a playground. Very, very vivid. A playground with a merry-go-round in the middle and a slide. and It's all full of these kids. But the kids are wearing these concentration camp clothes, and they got concentration camp uh, numbers on them. And that's because the Holocaust has always tripped me up, uh, especially when it comes to kids. Over one million children under the age of five were incinerated uh, in gas chambers. And that just has always been to me the most monstrous thought in the world. And so it, it, really, it, it really captures my whole issue with why children are protected. And so this playground's full of these kids and they're laughing and they're having so much fun. And in the middle is Jesus and the kids are climbing on Jesus and he's roaring with laughter and they're roaring with laughter. They're having so much fun. And I'm crying as I'm looking at this from the outside. And I'm saying, well, if you love them so much, why don't you protect them? And then he turns to me with these serene eyes and this, this, this beautiful smile. He's not angry. But he... He just says, Greg, and just as he's saying this, the kid climbs over and grabs his beard, starts pulling out his beard. He goes, Greg, you're just going to have to trust me on this one. 
I can make it up to the kids. I'm going to make it up to the kids. And see, that's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That I can behold uh, with an unveiled face. Uh, the glory of God, that's a little bit of God's love. I don't know how this works out metaphysically. We're not told much about the afterlife, how it's going to work. You know, I, I, I don't need to integrate all that into theology. What I got was a picture that evokes trust in me, and the trust is what heals the wound. So that I'm not always taken out of commission. I can trust that God somehow is going to make it up to the kids. But I don't just have to know that. I can experience that, and it's as I experience that, that it actually ministers to the wound that heals me. If we just give space to the Spirit to move, there's so much healing that can go on. It can be beautiful. He'll do stuff. He'll do stuff to reverse old messages that you got uh, that will just bring the kingdom into every cranny, every nook and cranny of, of, of your life. Folks, uh, turn, activate the inner sanctum. I encourage you. Uh, and throughout the day, have that on. Pay attention to what's going on there. And in prayer, swear not to the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, um, don't get frustrated with yourself if it doesn't come easy at first. Everything takes practice. Uh, but patiently ask the Spirit to... You just, you just pray the same way that you think about the past and anticipate the future. However, you, whatever you, however it works when you think about the past, we'll do that in prayer. Whatever you see, however you access that, that's, what, that's your imagination. And I'll pray with that and be open to the Spirit leading you on that. I'm going to close in prayer that the Spirit will seal this on our heart. And I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. Uh, and um, please take advantage of the fact that these folks are willing to serve you in prayer. Uh, we want to be a people of prayer. Come forward. Don't carry that burden out on your own. Uh, share it with these folks. But just stand. And I just say as we leave here, Lord, help us to be a people who live out of our inner sanctum. Help us to be a people who live in that inner sanctuary, who, who commune with you in our inner sanctuary, who listen to you in our inner sanctuary, who are paying attention. Help us to be a people who buck the indoctrination of the culture, uh, and especially the Christian subculture about imagination, but who understand that we really do encounter the real Jesus when we, your people, come to you in prayer. Help us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ over and over and over again to be transformed into his likeness. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Stay on your knees. Amen. Love you.